Okay, live from our walk-in closet, it's Game Dev Breakdown. Todd Mitchell here with an update on the game production episodes as well as a message that I received from a foreign government. Yes, that really happened today, and it may just apply to you. It'll probably apply to you. We'll get into that and try to figure out what's going on. Let's get into it. Good evening, fans. Tim Kitzrow here, the voice of NBA Jam, and you're listening to the Game Dev Breakdown Podcast, brought to you by CodeWritePlay.com. Okay, so if you've listened to the last episode, you know that I hatched sort of a grand scheme to take the show into a new direction. That direction is here. We're living it. And moving forward, I'm going to record sessions with friends where we chit-chat like usual. But then we're going to break out the whiteboard, literally the Zoom whiteboard, and we're going to design a game together as if it's the first day of a game jam. I'm going to work on that game jam idea for like an undetermined amount of time. I'm going to give updates on social. I might do Twitch dev streams. And uh, I might do some dev blogging on my site, CodeWritePlay.com. So we hope to also put games up to play. If if I make anything even remotely playable, I will put up a prototype where you can download it or at least play it on the web. I'm happy to report that I have recorded the first session. So the first game is underway and we're off to an awesome start. I honestly didn't know how this was going to go. I'll, it, it's a lot of pressure to ask somebody to jump on Zoom Think up a cool video game at random. Even when you have a friend there to bounce things back and forth. If you've done game jams, you kind of know what this is like. But I recorded a session with my friend Sebastian Deccan, who is a boss fight author who has been on the show before. He wrote about the Final Fantasy series. He totally crushed it with the book. He's a very nice guy. He's a hilarious person to follow on social. And he kindly booked to be the first experimental guest for this new format. And not only did we have a great time, but right at the buzzer, we tuned in on one of the single best jam ideas I've ever witnessed. Seriously, I've even like three quarters of the way through the episode, we were still very foggy on good directions we could go with this. And right near the end, it just came together perfectly. Fantastic. That session is in the books. I'm well on my way toward making a prototype for that game. I want to make that come to life. We decided on a main character we're super excited about, and I have that character walking around on screen. So look at us go. Here's where I'm still trying to figure things out. If this was a huge budget show and I had help with like everything, it would be amazing to put out one episode that had the interview, the progress segments, and then the final product all included in the same episode. That's like the Netflix or Hollywood version of this, what I want to do here. That would require money, that would require help, and that would still probably take several weeks to do each episode. But uh, I've, I've never worked harder on the show, and it doesn't make sense to quietly work on it while weeks pass by with no content, no updates. So I'm thinking as I stand here, I was going to say sit here, but I'm standing right now. I think the best thing to do is probably record those design sessions, put them out, and then get to work on the game. I was talking with my wife about this, and uh, she likes this idea, and that I love that. But she said, you know, when you put these out, will somebody steal the ideas you guys talk about? And she's like, if they would, is that good or bad? And, and those are good and reasonable questions. So first off, if you love an idea you hear on the show, and you want to take a crack at it, 
I would say put an info screen at the beginning of the game that says the concept is by me and my guest as heard on the Game Dev Breakdown podcast at the beginning and go nuts. Do it. I mean, like try to make the game. If, if you think you have a great idea for it or you want to do this right alongside us, I would love that. Every episode can be like a game jam. Show us what you came up with. We're going to do our version. I'd love to see yours. That's totally cool with me. So uh, I'd love to have that kind of participation. Let's make it a thing. If you make some money on it, cut us in. Do do the right thing for my guest. That would be great. Uh, y- you know. So yeah, as cool as it would be to have the guest discussion, the progress, and then like a flashy prototype all in one episode, I don't think that's a practical goal. So now that I think about it in this light, I think it's maybe more fun if everybody knows what the goal is so people can throw in ideas for mechanics and features and all that stuff. So yeah, let's make it an open development cycle. Let's all do it together. As for this first project, I will tell you it's going to be a 2D pixel art game because uh, Sebastian and I both happen to love games like that. Uh, I know a lot of you do as well. There's an interesting problem, though, and that problem is I'm a terrible artist, like legitimately. Uh, I realized in second grade that I wasn't drawing as well as the other kids around me. And so far, that developmental delay has lasted for 37 years. So how do you get around something like that? So in the case of this project, we knew this is what we wanted and the game was going to be largely focused on this cool and like very unique character that the player would control. So I knew I wanted to do it myself and not depend on something from like an asset pack or, you know, open game art like I usually do. Those things are great, but we wanted something special for this. So that got me thinking about the mobile game for kids that I put out back in like crap. Uh, years ago now, whenever it was, uh, my first commercial game that I shipped, um, to get the original artwork done for that game, I, I actually made almost all of it as vector art in, uh, Inkscape. So if you don't know the difference between vector art and other art, in short, it basically relies on data and math. It looks like any other art software, but it actually stores the information using like scalable formulas that are very modifiable. So every color, every curve, Every line can be pushed and pulled like however you like. So it has a couple of big advantages. First, as somebody who cannot draw, I don't have to get everything right ever. I can put a line down and when that line sucks and it will suck, I can move it. I can stretch it. I can send it back to hell altogether. Uh, I can make curves better and basically I can spend as much time as I need to make it right. And with enough time, I can make almost everything right. And I'm sure anyone can, because I would be the last person to do it. So the second advantage to this whole thing is the math and data part means like when I was making my first mobile game, I, I definitely didn't know at all what I was doing, like at all. I didn't know the best resolution to work in. I didn't know how to approach the fonts, but I knew that if I worked in vector art, I could resize anything and everything when I definitely found out later that I made everything in the wrong size, right? So when you resize vector art, it stays absolutely perfect because it's just redrawing the lines using the math and the data that it's stored. I don't completely know how it works, but I know it is perfect at every size. If you, if you resize it the right way, it always looks fantastic. So, uh, actually that's why it's a very popular way to design and store logos. Like you'll need logos and branding in a million sizes. So vector art makes that like a 30 second process. Okay. Now I need my logo on transparent in a 50 pixel by 50 pixel square done. It's no problem. Want to make it giant and horizontal, like whatever you want to do. Perfect. Very easy. 
which is good because in the case of iOS, you, you really need to make everything in several sizes. You, you app developers will understand this. You, you, you need to make, uh, regular art, then extra large art for the different phone sizes and stuff, uh, which obviously is insane. But working in Inkscape, which is still a very good vector art program today, uh, it got me across the finish line with art that people said nice things about. Like, you know, it wasn't groundbreaking, but that was a big deal for me, uh, you know, a programmer who makes filthy programmer art. That said, you really can't do pixel art directly with vector art tools. There is a route from one to the other if you want to spend, like, even a little more extra time, and some of you will kind of know where I'm going with this, but basically for this project, I designed our main character. He's this cool red panda in an archaeologist outfit. I've already posted him on Twitter. And I mean, fine, he's a red panda dressed as Indiana Jones, but with uh, khaki shorts that I would be more likely to wear, so it's very personal. Hi, buddy. Hi. And yeah, I did this totally in vector art using Affinity Designer. Uh, Affinity is not free like Inkscape, but I, I do really like it. And it's a reasonable one-time purchase. Like when it's on sale, do with that information as you please. But I designed this main character. I showed it to Sebastian, who's working with me on the game. He loved it. We celebrated for a few minutes as if the whole game had been done, because I think that's the mindset you have to keep when you work on games. Uh, otherwise I've been working with somebody, uh, on a project who calls that the the trough of discontent. Like at, at the first you go in guns blazing, very excited. Everything's great. And then things really get like things get hard. The middle of the project where everybody drops off. Most projects go to die. It's the whole thing is, can you push through that part? Right? So if I think if you keep that positive mindset and go, yeah, we're doing it. Isn't this great? You might get through that part. Maybe. So that's, that's my mindset anyway. So we celebrated as if it was a much bigger deal than it was. And then I set about translating that one sketch of one pose to like all the different poses I would need that character in just to get him to walk around the screen. And I don't mean like brilliantly animated. I mean like doot, doot, doot Mario style. After that, I needed that, but in pixel art instead of the vector art I had brought over. So, and it needed to be perfectly aligned. Of course, you guys have seen sprite sheets. You know what that looks like. They need to be side by side in the center of their squares so that when I import the sprite sheet into my engine of choice, which is Godot for this project, uh, the frames will look right and the character won't like blop all over the screen while he's walking around and just appear in random spots. So uh, I tried a few versions of this process, but what ended up being the best for me this time was to go into GIMP uh, because I'm not a Photoshop guy. I've never had, I don't, I've never had a Photoshop license in my life. Probably never will at this point, but I went into GIMP and I set up a guide, which is like a grid. And I don't think people use this in GIMP very often, but it does work very well for this. So I was aiming for 72 by 72 sprites. Um, don't ask how I ended up on that number. It was based on some math I did using the full screen resolution and deciding how much of the screen I wanted the main character to take up. There actually was a method to that madness, and I ended up at 72 by 72 pixel cells. So I started a new image big enough for all the poses side by side in two rows using a guide that divided the space into those 72 by 72 pixel cells. Then I exported the vector art from Affinity Designer, which is a vector editor, and I had it export a PNG, which uh, is just normal pixels at that point. So from there, I sized everything just right, put the poses in their little cells in GIMP, and uh, I already had a pretty good look at what the pixelized art was supposed to look like, because it was more or less sitting right there in front of me at that point. So. But 
From there, I meticulously drew over those pixels with GIMP tools. So you have the benefit of drawing and stroking paths and uh, filling in big spaces with the paint bucket tool, but I'm not going to pretend I didn't do a ton of work and it was a pain in the ass. Uh, it was, but it was worth it because my non-artist programmer ass ended up with a very passable pretty nice looking character to move forward with. And I'm very pleased with that. So uh, from there, I started the Godot project for this game and uh, using that sprite sheet, I actually do have the character animated and walking around the screen at this point. So there's not much else to the game yet. Uh, there are no backgrounds, but this is a good start. I'm excited about the progress. So uh, we can talk about the choice to use Godot for just a second, because some people will probably hear that and go, why not Unity? Why not Unreal? Why not Game Maker? There are other options. And I won't rant about this at length, but um, when I can, I'm going to use Godot. Uh, I'm capable of just grabbing an open source graphics and input library at this point and just coding from scratch at this progress point in my life, but uh, it, it obviously takes a lot more time. Uh, I need the quality of life benefits from an engine like deploying to multiple platforms or, you know, things, things so that people can actually see what we do. I think this content will also be more relatable if we're working in some engine, <laughs> you know? Uh, I'm past the point where I want to put up with like the random rich guys running Unity and Unreal and their super weird conduct. Uh, count me out on that. So I do want tools I can modify if I need to and extend uh, made by people who aren't fucking up the industry for everyone else <laughs> and laying people off while they hammer fat bonuses. Like, yeah, I can I can get a little opinionated on that because I, I run the show here. So uh, we can talk all day about necessary evil, this and that. But uh, I do understand. I do understand there are people on teams who don't get a choice. I understand there are people who just need certain capabilities. I'm not coming down on you. But I'm fortunate enough that I don't have to do that and I don't have to participate in that. So we're going to aim to do positive things with positive tools on this podcast. That's a new motto going forward. That concludes the production update portion of this episode. The game is underway. I'm hoping to release the design session as an episode next week. I'm working on the early mechanics of the game. I'm getting the UI in place and building little functional segments of the game. And I will firm up my thoughts on how to tie them together after that. And uh, it's a ride. I'm having a blast. I'm having so much fun. Uh, I hope that comes across here. So for the rest of the podcast, we will talk about an odd email I received today. Uh, the sender was just listed as the woman's name, who I won't mention, even though she's uh, a public figure, technically. I. I didn't know what this was about, but the subject said FAO game developers, new guidance on protecting children. So uh, I had to look up what FAO was supposed to mean in this context. And that might sound funny if, <laughs> if this is not, if this is more commonly known than I thought, uh, apparently it means for attention of game developers or for the attention of. So uh, maybe that's more popular internationally um, here in the U S I've never heard that used that way in my life. Uh, if I hear FAO, I think FAO Schwartz, the old toy company that uh, went out of business, uh, I think many years ago, um, the international element of that will come up here momentarily. So the message says, I'm getting in touch from the information commissioner's office as I wanted to flag our recent recommendations to game developers to help ensure they protect children when playing their games and comply with data protection laws. These UK recommendations will ensure that games conform with the children's code and should assist gaming communities 
to embed data protection considerations when designing gameplay. End of quote. So I thought, what the hell is the Information Commissioner's Office? Uh, because I'm not in the UK, and I also didn't do that well in school studying my own government. Buckle in, everyone. I'm about to weigh in on a bunch of stuff I don't understand. Let's go. So uh, this was sent from the lead communications officer of the information commissioner's office with the invitation to let her know if I had any questions. So for me, this is a full on foreign official. Like, I mean, if you just get technical for a moment asking me, hey, put the word out, which um, it's not quite that simple, but... <laughs> I did look at the press release she sent over, which uh, there were two links. One goes to the press release and one went to uh, like their full tips for game developers doing the blah, blah. So um, the press release is titled new guidance to industry issued for game developers on protecting children. Now, uh, again, as an American and all super like go freedom guy, like I am, I'm mostly joking, but uh, I'm, I'm already suspicious of a lot of the wording I'm seeing because I keep seeing like, I don't remember ever once seeing the word law, but I kept seeing words like uh, recommendations, standard, guidance, considerations. Uh, there's a whole lot of like, hey, we're friends and here's what we want you to do. And where I come from, that means like, you need to tell me exactly what the law is so I can start complaining about it. Uh, anyway, let's look at what the press release says. It starts with three bullet points. Number one is the information commissioner's office sets the standard for ensuring games conform with the data protection law. Okay. Uh, you guys will have to let me know if it's common in the UK to have a law and a standard, or if that is as confusing as it sounds to me, uh, because here it's like, there's law, there's precedent. I don't hear standard used the way they're using it here. Number two, 93% of UK children play video games. I read that and I thought, wonder what we can do about that last 7%. Let's get everybody on board, right? <laughs> uh, number three is game providers, that's us, uh, should identify if their players are under 18, which I would say, how? Uh, and the games themselves must not be detrimental to children's well-being. And uh, what in a game is considered, this is me, me speaking, but what in a game is detrimental to a child? So uh, that's several questions already. One, how do I know if my players are under 18 if I'm not collecting any data like everyone wants me not to? And, and that will come up later. Uh, two, what will the UK government consider detrimental to the well-being of a child? Uh, we'll get into that. And three, I will throw out a third here. Do developers outside the UK need to think about this at all? to try to learn more about this so I could actually be helpful and not just go, teehee, I got a silly email. No, I, I looked into the full press release. The opening says that the uh, information commissioner's office has issued a series of recommendations. Uh, I'm paraphrasing to help um, protect children when they're playing games. The recommendations are based on our experiences and findings during a series of voluntary audits of game developers, studios, and publishers within the gaming industry. Now, uh, this part caught my attention because for one thing, again, as an American person, as I happen to be, I've never heard the words voluntary audit in my life. Uh, that is the last thing in the world we would willingly participate in around here in general. Uh, second, they mention in several places that these findings of theirs are based on their, you know, their study with studios and publishers in the industry. But I was not able at a glance to find anywhere where they make that available. Maybe that data is out there. And if that's true, you can dismiss the following point. But if an American governing body was going to say, we did a study. And it's the foundation for all these new laws. Uh, it would go without saying that businesses, politicians, and even the public would have to have 
unrestricted access to that body of data, or you would you could essentially take your laws with you on the way out because there would be no cooperation. It would go straight to court. And uh, the journalist part of me says, I very much agree with that standard. Uh, I don't I don't think it's reasonable to say we looked into it and trust us. We need to introduce these new laws right away. Like, what did you study? Who did you talk to? Uh, how many people did you talk to? Did they have motivation to be dishonest? Would you have known if they were being dishonest? Like what qualifies you as the governing body that you are to understand the data you collected? Uh, what guarantee do we have that you translated that data into new policy proposals competently? There are good reasons for people affected and the public in general to have that information. So, uh, you know, and I, I could have... <laughs> I could have reached out for further comment. I don't know how long that would take, but uh, I am going to be following this, so I think it's fair to share my initial thoughts. Anyway, all these guidelines are to ensure developers make games that conform with the, quote, children's code, and it goes on to address the children's code. The children's code is a code of practice for online services likely to be accessed by children and explains how the UK's General Data Protection Regulation, or UK GDPR, applies to children using digital services. So I will admit, at first a lot of this was like, so what for me? And I was pretty sure I didn't need to think about it too much. But um, I will say that when I saw GDPR, I went into a little bit of a cold sweat. And I will explain why. As some of you know, because if you're working in games, if you're working in content, you may run a blog or a website. And if you run a blog or a website, the letters GDPR are probably a source of like a lot of pain and confusion for you, or at least were at some point in the past. So the GDPR for everyone else, uh, it's a huge set of laws intended to protect the data of European citizens, which is a nice thought, but it's super broad. It's super far reaching. And if you're not in Europe and you're thinking like, fine, that doesn't apply to me, you're probably wrong. Uh, companies in GDPR countries that's a no-brainer. You're affected by the law, and you can be fined huge for violating it. And this all has to do with what you do with data you collect about customers, visitors, or anyone. So then uh, companies headquartered in other parts of the world, but if they're doing business in GDPR countries, that's another slam dunk. You can be fined huge. Companies outside the GDPR area with uh, no presence in those countries whatsoever... If you're still allowing people in GDPR countries to visit your website or use your service and you're storing data, boom, it impacts you too. And you might say, like, how can that be? Uh, like, as an American, for example, do I have to comply with UK laws in this situation? Okay, well, uh, I know how that sounds, but as uh, as one website put it, uh, 650.com, even if you have no intention of doing business in the EU or UK, you must comply. The GDPR regulatory authorities have the power to enforce their standards thanks to international treaties and agreements. So what they're talking about here is the ability to pursue action against you in the U.S. legal system because of something you did here that impacted someone in the EU or UK. It is that serious and it has happened. So uh, there are American companies which, um, now to be fair, I think a lot of these companies are also doing business physically in the EU or UK. But there have been huge fines and penalties against uh, Google, H&M, Marriott, several Amer primarily American companies. Uh, fines for data breaches and noncompliance can go up to 20 million euros or 4% of worldwide turnover for the preceding financial year, whichever is higher. That's crazy. Okay, that whole side road is to say, uh, the idea that this children's code thing is part of the GDPR 
is actually pretty bad news for developers anywhere if they're if those areas are considered a trade partner for the EU or UK. That definitely qualifies the US, and it's a lot of places in the global economy. So what I'm saying here is I opened this thing up and went, so what? I'm not there, and then found out it's tied to the GDPR, and this is all brand new. We're going to have to see how it plays out. But, and I think people are going to start figuring this out, and you're going to start hearing this from other people smarter than me, more qualified to say it, but I'm going to say it here first. I think there's going to be accountability for many people around the world based on this GDPR compliance stuff uh, for game development. So assuming that's true and assuming that one day we're going to see an American game developer mess up and be pursued through the U.S. legal system by the EU or the U.K. because of something they did in a game, assuming we're going to see that day, let's talk about the hoops. You would have to jump through here to stay safe if you have players in that part of the world. First of all, the children's code is also known as the age-appropriate design code, and it is just miles long. <laughs> it's a very long code. It has uh, 15 major standard sections, additional parts on governance and enforcement, and annexes at the end. It is a ton of another country's laws that, <laughs> that you are going to be expected to be familiar with and deal with. So a lot of you are probably thinking, I don't make games for kids, so it doesn't apply to me. Well. That is not how the UK sees it. Uh, to comply with the code, they say you should be documenting how you will identify if UK players are under 18 and work out their actual ages with an appropriate level of certainty, whatever that means. You should investigate potential age assurance solutions to provide greater levels of certainty, linking back to risk assessments done at the design stage. Also, you're supposed to, quote, Implement measures to discourage or prevent players from giving false declarations of age. Uh, and someone would have to explain to me how I'm supposed to get someone else's kids not to lie. I'm going to skip down to their recommendations on preventing the detrimental use of children's data. You need to ensure that all optional uses of personal data are off by default and only activated after valid consent is obtained by the player. I don't care about this part. Uh, I don't, I don't want anyone's data for any reason, personally. Uh, I've been making games for over a decade without it. You can rarely even save your progress in my games and it is what it is. So here's where it gets weird. We start getting into the well-being of a child and not making games that are detrimental to that well-being. So, they start talking about stuff like introduce checkpoints, automatic periodic saving of progress, or natural breaks in play between game matches into game design. They're starting to get really intrusive here. Include age-appropriate prompts to encourage players to take breaks from extended play or help them to disengage from extended sessions without feeling pressurized to continue playing or becoming fearful of missing out. It, so, <laughs> I gotta stop right here. This is, again, this is hopefully unlikely. I hope I'm worried about something we're never really gonna see take off. But it's very upsetting that there's any possible path at all for a foreign government to pursue damages from me through the American legal system because kids in another country who weren't supposed to play my game got fear of missing out. FOMO. Holy shit. There's, there's much more to this than I'll ever be able to cover. <laughs> there's more than I can address in this one episode, but it does get even wilder. Uh, the children's code goes into detail about what it calls nudge techniques. And if they think you're using them irresponsibly, you could be cruising for a bruising, as my dad used to say before he went cruising 
for a divorce. Nudge techniques they mention include introducing time-limited or one-time-only offers on items targeted at children. So if you think of every mobile game you've ever seen, they've got a shop tab and they've got a bunch of sales and this code is telling you to watch it with that. So another one is communicating social media competitions and partnerships to children or encouraging children to create social media accounts for fear of missing out. So again, you're officially, as of yesterday, you are responsible for managing a child's fear of missing out. I don't, I don't know what that means. <laughs> I don't know how to comply with that. I don't know how aggressively they're going to pursue that, but if they really go wild with it, a lot of people are in trouble. I don't, <laughs> call your lawyer now. I don't know what to say. This, they also go into positive nudges you should use. And again, everything is so vague here. This whole thing is like, here's everything we're telling you to do. And we're not really making a lot of distinctions about what's actually legal and what's not. So it says the things you should do as a positive nudge, use neutral purchase button design and ability not to proceed with a purchase. So I guess, I guess they're saying like, try to use a drab color and, <laughs> and shape for the purchase button and make sure there's a, a nice, easy way to cancel a purchase. Okay. That's fine. I don't know if it should be a law. Another positive nudge, encourage children to take breaks. Like, look, do their parents not have to do anything anymore? Like, is it all for us now? <laughs> I know I was just complaining about this last week uh, because of, um, oh, it was two weeks ago with the television stuff. I just like the entire world is gradually shoving all parenting onto game developers. I don't mean to be a, a ranting lunatic here, but for one thing, it is important that you guys know about this. Um, but there is a lot more to this. I'll never get through it all here. The bottom line is if you develop games that are available in the UK at all, and I mean, even if you're trying to block them from going to the UK and people are figuring out how to play them anyway, you should probably familiarize yourself with this children's code and the UK GDPR as it pertains to video games and online services problem here, I'm not saying it's bad that they're trying to protect kids. I'm saying the problem is I think there's room for the UK to challenge developers for just about anything on this. If they, if they get bored, if they get aggressive, I think, I think a lot of people could be very vulnerable here. So, I mean, if, if a game is not for kids, they could claim too many kids are playing it anyway. If they're playing it anyway, they could say that the business model or the content or the marketing for the game are detrimental to those children. And you'll have a real problem on your hands, like a serious problem. So again, this is all brand new. It remains to be seen if they'll start to go after developers or big companies or publishers and how aggressive they're going to get and whether they're going to pursue it like across UK borders. So I'm just going to say that I'm guessing this will not be the last time this comes up. And I think it's going to be very interesting. So that's it, friends. I, I won't complain about it again unless there's another news story. And then we're going to see what direction this goes. So as always, friends, if you enjoy Game Dev Breakdown, please consider subscribing wherever you're listening right now. We have show notes, articles, and more at CodeWritePlay.com. Follow on Twitter at GameDevPod, at CodeWritePlay, or your humble host, Todd Mitchell, at MechaToddZilla with one D and two L's. I cannot wait to get more development done on our first big game and give you all a look. So follow along, get in touch, and I will talk to you all next time. Thanks, everybody.